and they spread an evil report of the land which they had spied out unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have passed to spy it out is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 45. General George McClellan and the Sin of the Spies. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In 1862, Robert E. Lee took his army into Maryland, the first time that it entered the North. Encountering this threat to Union forces, Lincoln turned to a man that he had already essentially fired and then brought back, General George McClellan. Suddenly it seemed that fortune favored McClellan because a Union private from Indiana came upon three cigars wrapped in a paper. What he had discovered was Special Orders Number 191, which is referred to today as Lee's Lost Order allowing McClellan to know exactly what Lee was planning. The History.com website succinctly summarizes the discovery. Quote, The 27th Indiana rested in a meadow outside of Frederick, Maryland, which had served as the site of a Confederate camp a few days before. Sergeant John Bloss and Corporal Barton W. Mitchell found a piece of paper wrapped around three cigars. The paper was addressed to Confederate General D.H. Hill. Its title read, Special Order 191, Headquarters Army of Northern Virginia. Realizing that they had discovered a copy of the Confederate operation plan, Bloss and Mitchell quickly passed it up the chain of command. By chance, the division adjutant general, Samuel Pittman, recognized the handwriting on the orders as that of a colleague from the pre-war army, Robert Chilton, who was the adjutant general to Robert E. Lee. Pittman took the order to McClellan. The Union commander had spent the previous week mystified by Lee's operations, but now the Confederate plan was clear. He reportedly gloated, Here is a paper with which... If I cannot whip Bobby Lee, I will be willing to go home. McClellan now knew that Lee's forces were split into five parts and scattered over a 30-mile stretch with the Potomac River in between. At least eight miles separated each piece of Lee's army and McClellan was just a dozen miles from the nearest Confederate Union at South Mountain. Bruce Catton, the noted Civil War historian, observed that no general in the war was ever given so fair a chance to destroy the opposing army one piece at a time, end quote. The Union and Confederate forces met in what was known respectively, as Antietam or Sharpsburg. The result, though technically a Union victory, was not the triumph it ought to have been. And that tells us a great deal about how fear and anxiety can hamper a general. And this fact also lies at the heart of one of the most disastrous moments in the story of biblical Israel. The story of the spies begins in chapter 13. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Send thou men, that they may examine the land of Israel. From every tribe for their fathers shall ye send a man, every one a prince among them. Moses thus sent to explore the Holy Land, twelve men from twelve tribes. The men returned, and in verse 27 deliver their report. And they told him and said, We came unto the land whither thou sent us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. However, the people that dwell in the land are fierce, and the cities are fortified and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. Amalek dwelleth in the land of the south, and the Hittite and the Jebusite and the Amorite dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanite dwelleth by the sea and along by the side of the Jordan. And we are further told in verse 32, And they spread an evil report of the land which they had spied out unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have passed to spy it out is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof and all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. Israel, hearing this report, cries out in dismay. But two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, 
Yehoshua and Kalev, deliberately exclude themselves from these nattering nabobs of negativism. They eschew profound pessimism and encourage Israel to embrace optimism, hope, and faith. They say in Numbers 14.8, If the Lord delighteth in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it unto us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Only rebel not against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land. But it is too late. Israel bemoans its fate, writes off the forthcoming battles as unbearable, and God sentences the entire generation to wander the desert for 40 years, to die there, with only their children entering the land. Chapter 14, verse 30. Surely ye shall not come into the land concerning which I lifted up my hand that I would make you dwell therein, save Kalev son of Yephunneh and Joshua son of Nun. Fear here, fear of the forthcoming battle, is the ultimate sin. Fear from the spies and fear fostered by the spies among the people. Those who are not punished embody the opposite. Joshua defeats fear. Kalev is all confidence telling Israel eloquently in 1330, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. In the end, giving into fear makes or breaks leaders and makes or breaks those they lead. This was true then and now. It is true of the leaders of the tribes that were the spies of the Bible, the princes of Israel. And it is true in American history, including at Antietam. As Ronald Roberts of West Point writes of George McClellan, quote, When gifted with the perfect piece of intelligence with which to destroy Lee, he did nothing for 18 crucial hours. Moving slowly as was his habit, he allowed the dangerously exposed garrison at Harper's Ferry to be sacrificed and permitted Lee to concentrate his forces on the ground of his choosing at Sharpsburg, end quote. Every man has fear. The question is whether you let it get the better of you. And because of McClellan's own lack of confidence and anxiety, he was unable to fully use the fact that he knew exactly what Lee was planning. In summarizing McClellan's flaws, Roberts cites T. Harry Williams in his book, Lincoln and His Generals. Williams writes about McClellan, quote, He was a fine organizer and trainer of troops, and his men, sensing that he identified with them, idolized him. In preparing for battle, he was confident and energetic. But as he approached the field of operations, he became slow and timid. He magnified every obstacle. In particular, the size of the enemy army increased in his mind the closer he got to it. In battle, he tended to interpret sight and sounds in his front as unfavorable to him. He hesitated to throw in his whole force at the supreme moment, and he withdrew when bolder men would have attacked. End quote. Many of these phrases perfectly describe as well exactly how the spies reacted to what they saw in the Holy Land. Magnified every obstacle. The size of the enemy army increased the closer they got to it. McClellan let his own lack of confidence, his own inner fear, dominate. And so did the spies. Perhaps the best line about McClellan was said by a soldier on the other side of the Battle of Antietam, or what the Confederates called Sharpsburg. An aide to Robert E. Lee said, quote, There was a single item in our advantage, but it was an important one. McClellan had brought superior forces to Sharpsburg, but he had also brought himself. He had brought himself. McClellan had brought to the fore of his leadership his every anxiety, and it hindered him, as well as the forces he led. Many think that the war could have ended there in 1862, 
but in the end it dragged on for years. Israel could have entered the land at this very moment. But when the spies brought back a report of the goodness of the land, of its extraordinary agriculture, they also brought themselves. They brought every negative aspect of themselves to the fore. This, then, is the central sin of the spies. But it is in the writings of the great Sephardic scholar, statesman, and exegete, Isaac Abravanel, that we find something extra and surprising. Abravanel argues that whereas, of course, Moses was not complicit in this terrible crime of the spies, and whereas, of course, Moses himself had no fear of Israel's enemies and never, ever put himself before his service to God and to Israel. Nevertheless, for Abravanel, there is one thing that Moses said that helped set the stage for this story. Let us go back to the beginning. God asked Moses to send forth men that they may examine the land, in Hebrew, Turu at Eretz Canaan. Moses himself adds the following in his instructions to the spies. And see the land what it is, and the people that dwelleth therein, whether they are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and what the land is that they dwell in, whether it is good or bad, and what cities they are that they dwell in, whether in camps or in strongholds. God, Abravanel argues, merely asks for a description of the land. Moses, however, adds a request for an investigation of military might. Now Moses, of course, did not at all fear the forces they were about to face. He had absolute and total faith that God would allow Israel to overcome anything arrayed against them. But for Abravanel, by making an evaluation of Canaanite might part of the mandate of the spies, Moses, Abravanel argues, thereby inadvertently opened the door for the men that he had sent, the spies, to misuse their position and sow seeds of fear among the people of Israel. And therefore Moses, according to Abravanel, had to bear a bit of the responsibility. Abravanel goes further. In Numbers 20, we are told how after Israel spends 40 years in the desert, the next generation complains to Moses again, demands water. Moses is told by God to draw water from a rock by speaking to it, and Moses instead strikes the rock in anger at the people of Israel and is informed by the Almighty that he, Moses, will now be barred from entering the Holy Land. The story of the punishment of Moses is mystifying for it is not clear how this one act of anger justifies his exclusion from entering the land. This very question inspires Abravanel to offer an audacious assertion. In his opinion, it was actually the mistake made by Moses in the story of the spies for which he was first and foremost punished. The Bible merely focuses on the tale of the rock, a minor mistake by Moses, in order to preserve his dignity. This assertion by Abravanel is somewhat shocking. But as he himself notes, Moses at the end of his life appears to assert that the spy episode was the reason for his punishment. Moses in Deuteronomy, reviewing the spy story, describes the Lord's reaction to Israel's profound fear. Moses says as follows in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 34, And the Lord heard the sound of your words and was angered and swore, saying, There's surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land which I swore to give unto your fathers. Save Kalev the son of Yifuneh, he shall see it. And to him will I give the land that he hath trodden upon unto his children, because he hath wholly followed the Lord. And then Moses adds the following in verse 37. Also the Lord was angry with me for your sakes, saying, Thou also shalt not go in there. Joshua the son of Nun, who standeth before thee, 
he shall go in there. Encourage thou him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I must say that I do not embrace Abravanel's exegetical explanation. But whether or not one adopts his approach, at the very heart of Abravanel's writings is an important insight that is true as a general principle. Leaders must always be careful not only to be courageous, but also to constantly inspire and cultivate courage in those they lead. And ultimately, it is because of Moses' leadership that Israel will be led into the Promised Land by one with Moses' courage and Moses' worldview. Moses has imbued his own faith and his own lack of fear onto his heir Joshua, whose name, we are told, was not originally actually Joshua, but rather Hosea, which means he saves or he is saved. But Moses, we are told at the beginning of the episode of The Spies, gave the name a slight twist. Numbers 13, 16. These are the names of the men that Moses sent to explore the land. And Moses called Hosea, son of Nun, Yehoshua, Joshua, which means God saves. And if Joshua's name change appears here, it is perhaps in order to emphasize that it was Moses' lesson of who truly is our source of salvation that made Joshua impervious to the fear of most of the spies. Joshua is Moses' man. And while Moses himself will be barred from entering the land of Israel, nevertheless, his legacy endures. And the man he molded shall lead Israel into the land without fear and with great courage. This, in the end, is a lesson we take away from this tale. How important it is for leaders to inspire those that follow them. The sinful spies were all leaders in their age. We are told in Numbers 13.4 that all of them were men who were heads of the children of Israel. But just as the head is the source of the stimuli for the body, the fear that they felt traveled through the people of Israel. Conversely, when leaders are courageous and inspire likewise those they lead, their own courage can ignite the souls of others. And if McClellan brought not only superior armies, but also his own anxieties to his failure at Antietam, there were, fortunately, other examples of leaders who inspired courage in the Union forces. Perhaps one of the greatest moments in the Civil War took place when the Union repelled Lee's other incursion into the North in 1863 at Gettysburg. For some historians, the entire battle at Gettysburg ultimately turned on one small area, a high ground known as Little Round Top, which was defended by the 20th Maine, led by Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. Out of ammunition desperate to hold this high ground, Chamberlain ordered his forces to take out their bayonets and to charge straight at the guns of the forces below them. The memoir of a man who fought for Chamberlain, Theodore Garish, described the scene. Quote, Colonel Chamberlain understands how it can be done. The order is given, fix bayonets, and the steel shanks of the bayonets rattle upon the rifle barrels. Charge, bayonets, charge! Every man understood in a moment that the movement was our only salvation. But there is a limit to human endurance. And I do not dishonor those brave men when I write that for a brief moment the order was not obeyed, and the little line seemed to quail under the fearful fire that was being poured upon it. But then Garish adds, one man, Lieutenant H.S. Melker, stepped forward, quote, with a cheer and a flash of his sword that sent an inspiration along the line, full ten paces to the front he sprang, ten paces, more than half the distance between the hostile lines, 
Come on, come on, come on, boys, he shouts. Gerish writes further, quote, with one wild yell of anguish wrung from its tortured heart, the regiment charged. The rebels were confounded at the movement. We struck them with fearful shock. They recoil, stagger, break, and run, and like avenging demons, our men pursue, end quote. The Confederates were routed and captured, and this moment may well have saved the Battle of Gettysburg, and thereby perhaps the war, which is why these words that Garrett wrote of his regiment are still cited today. Stand firm, ye boys from Maine, for not once in a century are men permitted to bear such responsibilities for freedom and justice, for God and humanity, as are now placed upon you. It was Roosevelt who famously said that the only thing to fear is fear itself. But the Bible put it a bit differently, giving us verses such as, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, or, though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. It is the fear of God, the awareness of the presence of God, faith in God, embodied in the name that Moses gave Joshua. That is the solution to fear. And it is that biblical call to courage that, for readers of the Bible, echoes throughout the ages. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.